All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I'm uh, in a hotel room in St. Louis, Missouri, looking at my reflection in a mirror. I didn't plan it that way. I'm sitting at a desk and I don't love it. It's distracting. So now I'm going to shift my focus towards the window. How's it going? You all right? This episode is a very special show to me because it was an amazing experience for me to talk to the woman I talked to, who is, uh, that woman is Eve Ensler. Now, some of you may know Eve Ensler. She is the, uh, the writer of the Vagina Monologues, and she's done a, wor- a lot of work on behalf of abused women and global work on behalf of the environment and women in other countries. Uh, but she wrote a new book called uh, The Apology, which I just read on on a whim. I, I get a lot of books and uh, and I don't read a lot of them. I Sometimes I'll just judge by the cover or by, by what it's about, whether or not I'm interested or whether or not there's a guest to be booked on that book. But this one just came in. It was a little book. And, you know, I, I know of events where I read the vagina monologues many years ago. And it just, for some reason, it struck me. It's just, just the book itself. And it's a little book. It's a little hardcover book. And I read it. And I think it changed my life. It's a heavy book, but I felt compelled to, to talk to Eve. I, I had to talk to her. And we made it happen fairly quickly after I read the book. Uh, I was in New York and I spoke to her. But it's, 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 a, it's a heavy, beautiful conversation. It's a rare conversation about the essence of toxic masculinity. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the book and... Uh, about you know my experience talking to her but but you know that that'll be in a minute let me just let me just get you into where I'm at now I am in St. Louis I have been for a few days and uh it's been great it's and I didn't want to come here I did not you know I don't want to alienate people I have nothing against the the good people of St. Louis who enjoy what I do but this state is a fucking just a dumpster fire of right-wing garbage and there's part of me that's like do i want to go to a state that's a dumpster fire of right-wing garbage of just completely you know heinous religiosity do i want to be part of that and then you realize like well there's that old adage i think it's an adage maybe it's just something people say in the world we live in now hey there are good people everywhere that's true but sometimes they're surrounded they're surrounded by dubious people. I don't even want to say bad. How about misguided? How about wrong-minded? How about uh, myopic in a bad way? Is there myopic in a good way? Uh, dangerous. How about that? Uh, inconsiderate, disrespectful, uh, hurtful, um, you know, fascistic. Yeah, there's a number of ways to describe bad people, and there's, I, you know, I could go on. On some level, in these situations where you have a, a little blue pocket in a uh, a massive amount of of uh, geographical red, they're excited. I'm coming, and they, and it's like uh, they don't expect people to come necessarily that are like minded. They don't they don't expect people to to talk out loud who are like minded unless it's quietly and you know the person you're talking to is like minded that, that's what happens in these red states is a uh, progressives or democrats or people that don't think along party lines sort of cluster amongst themselves have secret meetings to just relieve some stress and yeah i seem to be running a few of those which is fine it's good i, I guess there's one thing i wanted to tell you before i forget is that i the montreal just for laughs festival 
uh, is happening in July, and I'm part of it. I, I initially was invited up to do a glow panel with some of the women, and, and then I asked them if they'd uh, throw me a nice little theater, a sweet little theater gig. So they did. So I'll be at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal, July 26th, uh, doing comedy. And then on July 27th at 1.15 in the afternoon, we're going to be doing the Glow panel. But, you know, you can go, you know, go to, to hahaha.com and, and find it. All right, Montreal. So we got that out of the way. So getting back to what I was talking about, there is one thing that happened that was kind of interesting because I have been here before and I remember it not being a great experience. And I, and I don't think I quite remembered why I did a show at the firebird. It was a small rock club. It was before I really could pull anybody. And, and, and I remember thinking like, yeah, I don't know if I need to come back here. It haunted me like in the current frame. You know, I thought I was nervous about the political environment and also, you know, angry at the state's politics. And I, I'm going to give, uh, a portion of my earnings from these shows to Planned Parenthood. But, you know, there was something stuck in my craw and, and I figured out what it was. I had a bad memory, but, you know, I didn't have it focused. And the first night, interesting, it's sort of, it's a couple of beautiful things happened, really. My, my feature act, the first night I performed, my feature act, uh, Mary Radzinski, uh, you know, I, she's great. She's great. We're having a great time. But she comes off stage, she's like, you know, you're going to have to deal with this. You know, as we're walking past, she looks at me with this weird face. But I get on stage, and right stage right, there's a woman alone, and she's got a laugh that is, uh, it's it's unique, and it's loud. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it, it's annoying, and it can be disruptive. And Mary drew attention to it, and I got up there, and I heard her laughing, but I didn't register it. I, I I didn't really think about it, but but it was sometimes when you do comedy, there's there's someone who has a laugh, and it, it's recognizable, and it stands out against all the other laughter in the room, and it it, it you know it, you can acknowledge it, and then it, it becomes funny because it it is sort of uh, impossible not to notice it, but then it just becomes its own punchline, and it can eat your show up. But I didn't acknowledge it; I just did that set, and it was fine. And then Friday, second show comes, and I'm backstage, and I hear Mary's on stage, and I hear that laugh again all the way backstage. I hear that laugh, and I walk out, and I'm like, what is happening? Is she here again? And she was. So it, it happened again, and, and it was brought more to the attention uh, of the audience, and they were aware of it, and then I brought attention to it. And, and then like uh, she told me that she was at my show years ago at the Firebird, and I remembered like, oh, my God. That was one of the reasons it was bad. And I felt bad about that. But I remember I could not get out from under her laugh and, and, and how it was, I was kind of locked into it. And it made the set difficult. And here she was. It was like karma. It was like a reckoning. It was like I had to, uh, to deal with it. And I said to the audience, I said, this, uh, this, this show is going to be an exercise in tolerance. And that's important. It's a, an exercise. In, because what are you going to do? I mean, the assumption is, you know, your first assumption, your defensive assumption is she's got to have, she's got to be able to control that thing. I mean, she's got to be able to temper that, but is she, I don't know. Why, why assume that? I mean, that's just who she is. That's her laugh. And as a comedian, what are you going to be? What are you going to say? Like, you know, Hey, could you cut, would you stop laughing, please? It's a, it's, it's disruptive. So it was sort of an interesting challenge. You don't want to be a comedian complaining about somebody who's getting a lot of laughs because their laugh is annoying. And, 
that's just her laugh. She's one of those unique people. But it was a, it was a bit of karma, and it was a bit of a, of a learned tolerance. So see that human lessons abound, folks. Also, another thing happened uh, to me is that a, a fan came up to me, a taller gentleman, slightly nerdy, and he gave me a gift. He said, I want you to have this. He says, I know that you're, you know, you're kind of hard on the, the nerds and the fantasy nerds and the Marvel movie business, but I, I just, me and my friends have been playing D&D for, since high school, and this guy's in his 40s or something, or in his late 30s, and he gave me a Dungeons and Dragons die, and he said, we want you to have this. And I almost started crying because like that's, you know, then I'm put in that position where I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't mean you. You know, I'm just generalizing about a, a type of person and then judging from there, you know, the worst thing you can do. But I've, I've sort of tempered that material and it actually turns out to be sort of celebratory in the end of the, of the uh, show I'm doing about nerd culture. But, but it was very touching and it made me rethink things because he said, you know, we've been playing D&D for a long time and it, it's really our way of engaging our creativity. I'm like, oh man, you're killing me, pal. You're killing me. Another lesson, little karma, little tolerance. And I got me a Dungeons and Dragons die. And just looking at this thing, I'm thinking, even if I knew the basic idea of the game, this die seems complicated and I would never really be able to wrap my brain around it. It seems like there's math involved. Now, what's going on in a few minutes is, is, is a profound thing. My conversation with Eve Ensler. Because I read that book and I, I, I don't know how to, there's no spoiling the book, but it's a very courageous book to write. And you can feel it in the prose. The prose is, is beautiful. The content of the book is horrible, horrendous, but uh, it's written beautifully. It's, uh, it's, it's Eve coming to terms with um, the physical, sexual, and emotional abuse that her father put her through uh, beginning at like age five. Her father has since passed away. The entire book is basically a, a letter from her dead father as, a, as a, a disembodied voice occupying limbo. And it's an explanation. It's a, it's a, a self-reckoning of how, why, and, uh, and, and his feelings about um, sexually, physically, and emotionally abusing his daughter. So the way she must have constructed it, and we'll talk about it, is that she had her own experience of all of those events, and then she had to humanize her father, and which I, I on some level, he was a human, she, he was her father, but in order to sort of figure out the workings of his mind and how he justified, rationalized, or, or, or engaged in this behavior, there had to be some explanation, and she chose to tackle it from his point of view. So what you, you have is, is a, a full um, kind of taking of responsibility by this, this horrendously toxic man and, 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 and an apology uh, for the most part, but she's not apologizing for him. She is, she is putting it together for herself. You know, it's her reckoning. But to get into the mind of somebody with empathy that destroyed your soul is um, quite a courageous bit of creativity. And it was profoundly moving to me because I believe that there's a spectrum of toxic masculinity and, and a lot of men fall on that spectrum. Maybe even most of us that, you know, you have the, the sort of the one end, which is like, you know, kind of the basic disrespect patterns of, uh, 
of uh, emotional neglect or lack of empathy, mild emotional abuse, and then that spectrum just sort of arcs all the way to murder. And I think that most men can find themselves somewhere in there at the low end of that scale. And that, you know, part of being, you know, woke or, or beginning to understand or have a conversation around those things, either with yourself or with the, a, a woman or, or with many people about who you are in relation to that is, uh, you know, is not happening enough. It's happening with some of us in our minds, but I don't know that I hear the conversation much. And this woman, events where it's chosen to, to sort of have that conversation with her dead father through this book. And I found it provocative because for me, you know, you read this thing and it is within this, this text is, is really the, the geometry of toxic masculinity on all levels. This is obviously a far end of the spectrum example on, on all levels. But, you know, the impetus and the justification and the lack of sensitivity, the lack of empathy, the, the complete dehumanization, the, uh, the seeking to get malignant needs met despite what it'll do, it's all in there. And there's different variations of those kind of themes, I think, in a lot of men's lives. So I just felt compelled, you know, being somebody who is, you know, aware and, uh, you know, trying you know, to understand, you know, who I am as a man and who I've been as a man. It was uh, an important conversation to have. And it was, you know, just, you know, utterly moving uh, for both of us. And I don't think either of us knew how it was going to go, but I knew that I needed to reach out to her. And I knew I needed to you know, have an open heart about it and to have empathy about it and to, and to listen and to also to understand, you know, how she found it within herself to do this book. So it was powerful. And, and I think that the experience you'll have listening to it will be powerful too. So I, I'm, I'm wary to use the word enjoy, but I, I will use the word engage. Uh, you know, please now uh, engage uh, with my conversation with the amazing Eve Ensworth, the apology, the book that we're talking about, among other things, is available now wherever you get books. I'm walking around here, like I used to live in the Lower East Side and then I lived on 16th and 3rd. Oh my God, I lived on 16th and 5th for years. You did? Yeah, years. 20 some odd years. 30 years actually. Right there? I lived... 16th between 5th and 6th. Wow, I lived at that old doorman building right at 3rd and 16th. Oh, I know what it is. Right yeah. next to Joe Jr. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yep. Right? Yep. Have you been there? Have I been there? I lived there for 30 years. It's a weird building. <laughs> but like I walk around now and I, you know, your brain kind of scrambles to hold on to I something. Know. Some things are there, but like it's really slowly disappearing, right? Everything's disappearing. The city is corporate, white, rich. Yeah. I don't know this place anymore. I don't know who lives here. I don't know anyone who lives here. It's, it's like, it, it kind of freaks me out. Like I, That's I, why I don't come here anymore. I, I lived here since I was 23 years old. And, you know, one morning I woke up, you know, yeah. the way you do with a boyfriend or a husband right. or a lover. Yeah. Or a, and you wake up and you go, I don't like the way you smell. Yeah. I don't like the way you sound. <laughs> I don't like the way you feel. I got to go. <laughs> and it only takes 20 years. Yeah, exactly. 
or 30. Depending on your loyalty factor or self or sadism. It's true. I I, I mean, it's it's really hard with those kind of things, with the relationships, with things that you love. And then. Are we on? Sure, we're on. This is part of our interview. Of course we're on. <laughs> okay. Why wouldn't it be part of our interview? These aren't. No one does interviews anymore, Eve. We yeah. talk. Oh, really? Is that what We happens? talk with people. How long have you been out of the city, really? I mean, like. I moved upstate five years ago. And do you have animals? I have, I have a dog. I have a pet snapping turtle that visits me every day. In, a, in the water? Mm-hmm. You have water. I have fish. Yeah. I have, um... Like animals that return every season, yeah. You know, so they, you know, like you're back, yeah. Don't like, worry. oh my god, where have you been? You've been away, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my friends. Oh, that's sweet. I don't like. It's weird, as I said when I was setting up. I don't know how we didn't meet each other because I was looking at the the sort of history of it. The vagina monologues was ninety five. Started in ninety four. Ninety four, mm-hmm. and it was in the basement of Cornelia Street. You started doing the that? first time I ever did any of the monologues was in the basement of the Cornelia Street. Because that place seats 12 people. No, 50. Yeah, I mean, I used to do yeah, shows yeah, there. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. No, it's so funny. And I, I, I didn't even know. It was just like I was playing. And I did, I did it there that night. And people yeah. were like, what is this? And I was like, you're kidding, right? Yeah. And so I got a little encouraged. Right. Because you know? they, they were curious. and they were like, People were loving it. Mind blown. And, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. that kind of thing. So right. I, I think I read two or three monologues. Or right, something. yeah, yeah. And then, and then it just kind of built from there. Yeah, step by step. But you weren't really part of that. Uh, the kind of I, like when I got, I think you're not much older than me, but a little bit. But there was a whole generation of performance artists and stuff. No, I wasn't part of that generation. Right, you're a little later, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you weren't like the 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 you know what was the Karen name? Karen Finley. Yeah, and Eric, and you know all Eric, those people. Well, I know Eric really yeah, well, sure. but I, you know, yeah. but it was the generation before. Yeah. So okay, here's what happens. So I know who you are. I've seen the vagina monologues at some point in my life, and I just I get this book, the apology, the new book. It comes with many books. I get many books. Of course you do. Yeah, I don't even ask for them, and they come. <laughs> I had to, I had to rent an office just to accommodate books, <laughs> and I look at it and I'm like, all right, I know her, and then I start reading it, and I'm like. What the fuck is happening? It was, it, it, I, do, I don't even know, you know, you, I read the whole thing, you know, cover to cover, and then I had to sit with it, and then I had to, like, experience my own pain. Mm, mm, mm. And, you know, and I just, like, I've never read anything like it, and, you know, the, the language of it is great. It, it, you know, I mean, it's powerful. But the task of doing this, I, I can't even imagine what you went through to do this, to write this. Mm. And I guess like, I, I, I just want to talk about, like, uh, because when I come out of it, you know, I'm, I'm reading it as a man. Like, mm. I don't know. And by the way, it was really exciting to me that you as a man were that moved by it. It's one of the happiest things that's happened so far. Oh, really? No, it is. I'm about to cry now. No, no, really. Because, yeah, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm sure you don't have a specific audience in mind. But Everyone. I sure, of <laughs> yeah, course. Yeah. And men. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But Be, well, because like, you know, to sort of, to, when I realized that, you know, what you had to do to process the anger and then sort of move through some sort of grief in order to get to, you know, constructing an apology from the point of view of this monster who was your father and then have to construct a psyche and a, and a, a, a morally bankrupt but emotional universe for this guy. I mean, I just, I, I couldn't even, you know, picture what you went through. But as a man, you know, seeing some, uh, seeing a, 
an emotional and and kind of explanation, you know, for really the most violent and toxic type of masculinity. Just you know, it, you know obviously by degrees, but you know, at, you know, moving through this psyche as as a man was sort of like it was sort of devastating because you somehow were able to put intent that was explainable to him mm. in this piece. Mm. Now, is this the first time you've discussed publicly the the abuse? I've been broad about the abuse. You yeah. know, I've talked I've talked openly about being a sexual abuse and right. violent survivor. I've never been really specific. Right. I've never been graphic about it. But, you know, what you're saying is really interesting about um, the process of going inside my father or letting my father come inside me because I think it was a back and forth. Um, I think it's taken me 65 years to be able to do this. Yeah. Right? It didn't happen overnight. And, and, and I want to just preface this by saying it's an offering. It's not a prescription. It's, 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 what does that mean exactly? Meaning it, it's not a have to. Like, uh, I don't feel like... For somebody, for another victim. Yeah, another survivor doesn't have to choose to do this or make an apology or receive an apology. It's Everyone's on their own timetable and their own process and they may never get there and they don't have to get there. But I think for me, I have spent so many years really being um, a victim to my father's perpetrator, whether I'm conscious of it or not. I'm still in that narrative, right? Of course. And I realized last year you know, having worked in a movement to end violence against women for 20 years, where women, women have been telling their stories, speaking out. A movement that you helped put together. The, and this is the V-Day movement that yeah. is year-round, really. Yeah, right. Yeah, and has been here for 21 years. And working on this day after day, and then the new recent iteration with Me Too, I suddenly asked myself last year, okay, men are being called out. Yeah. Some are losing their jobs for a minute. Right. <laughs> Some are going to jail, maybe two. Yeah. Um, some are losing status. But I, have I ever heard a man grapple with this? Has a man come out publicly to say, okay, this is what I've learned. This is the process I've been through to change. Mm. This is the history I've gone back to evaluate. This yeah. is the self-interrogation I've done. Right. This is the apology I'm going to make. Yeah. Honestly, I have never heard a single man do that. Not yet. Right? right? No, I agree. And, and, and it's because they're... I, I wonder what that has to do with, you know, in terms of public personalities, whether they're advised or they don't have the courage or they don't feel the necessary contrition. But I think it's some sort of mixture of, of the three. I, 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 don't I don't know. My father says it in the book. Mm. He says, to be an apologist is to be a traitor to men. And I think there's something so deep about that, that, that as soon as one man says he's sorry and tells the story, and does the details, and owns what he's done, and acknowledges that what he does is wrong, and that he knows it's wrong, mm. the whole story of patriarchy begins to crumble. Right. That's the crumbling moment. Right. And I think when I was writing it, I realized, oh my God, this is a central notion, the apology. This, is, this isn't, a, isn't a side thing. This is right smack in the center of everything that when, a man is, when men are willing to step up and, and own what they've done, evaluate what they've done, go into the deep process you need to, to go into to understand how you became somebody who is capable of harassing or raping or beating or demeaning or grabbing, whatever, whatever you've done, the world's going to change. Right. That's going to be the change moment we've been waiting for. Right. So what's going to trigger that? And I think, I thought to myself, well, maybe I could write what I want to hear. 
maybe I could write the words and what it would sound like and look like so it could be a possible blueprint. Yeah, and I, and I felt that as a man. That, but this, it, it's strange and sad that it functions you know, as a memoir as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. That like, you know, this is in, in a full arc of your life from as early as you can remember you know, through, and I thought that was another uh, amazing thing about the book is that as somebody who's um, a survivor, you know, when you, when, like you say at the beginning, you talk, you used to talk broadly about it. And, and all of us who have some sort of childhood trauma who are, who are addicts and alcoholics, you know, we, we, yeah, me too, right? And that's another reason I'm surprised I never met you <laughs> down around the things. So, it's that you kind of broadly say like, well, I had something to do. It probably has something to do with my upbringing. But with this, I mean, it, it, alongside of, of, you know, the abuse, you're, you're sort of able to track for yourself your behavior patterns that were, became malignant to you directly to, mm. to certain events and, and, and you, you know, the arc of the different styles of abuse. So that must have been, you know, incredibly cathartic. Oh, my God. I'll tell you the most exciting thing about this book. I think most survivors, and I want to ask you a question after this. I think most survivors are left with the, the kind of, what is that word, that, the yawn, that open yawn of the why. Yeah. Why did this friend drug me and rape me? Why did my father want to destroy his own child? Why did they do this? And I, and I think the why just uh, we're obsessed with it for eternity so for me to go into my father to go into him and just say why tell me why and to begin to look at oh this led to this and this made you this and this made you this i cannot tell you how that began to what i'm now kind of referring to as the alchemy of the apology it begins to alchemize and change the chemistry of your own being because it begins to release things that have just been stuck there in not knowing, mm. in wondering, in searching, like, why would this person do this to me? But I'm really curious for you, what did it trigger for you as a man? What did it bring up for you? Did, what, do you feel like I was right? Did, did, I, did I get things about men that felt close to something? Well, I think what was, you know, most dis- disturbing for me is that, you know, it's not, it's, it's these, you know, destructive impulses, mm-hmm. right, that, that happen, you know, out of a, you know, fundamental inability to, uh, to I- express love mm. or to be, um, you know, to express vulnerability mm. or to, uh, y- you know, or, or to, you know, not dump your problems on other people, your, your own resentment towards yourself or to, mm-hmm. you know, I think that the structure of that, of the mm-hmm. inability to, to be open, which seems to be a theme. I talked to Brene Brown recently. Mm-hmm. No, it did, it did resonate in terms of, you know, masculine justifications mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. horrible behavior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that is, mm-hmm. this, you know, I mean, the, the fact is this is extraordinarily horrible. Mm. This is about as bad as you can be. Yet he, you know, in your characterization of him, lives with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and was admired. And was admired. I mean, no one knew what was happening inside the family. He was, you know, he was a head of a corporation. He was But handsome. also the, the absence was, of guilt. Yeah, exactly. Like the... Like the, the, the well, look social, at Harvey Weinstein. Does he have any guilt? I don't know. There, there is no evidence of guilt anywhere. Yeah, I don't know what... I, Bill Cosby... No evidence of guilt. No evidence. No I mean, evidence. Well, that's also the, the, the sort of like the horrible reality of narcissism. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Is that, that, you know, you're in, incapable of empathy or, or, or self-conscious, self-awareness in that way. Mm-hmm. Or, or feelings. Sometimes I feel like we use narcissism as an excuse not to deal with the tyranny of patriarchy. But real, you, I'm talking yeah. about pa- personal, real pathological narcissism. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I, get, I agree with that. But I also don't know where patriarchy ends and narcissism begins. In an we, individual. Yes, because when you have all the power and all the privilege, right? Doesn't, right. Isn't that almost inherently narcissism? Right? There's a kind of inbuilt narcissism to patriarchal power. An entitlement. Entitlement. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. But like, but in, ter- in, in the personal story, though, but, you know, by investigating him deeper, mm. you, know, you, you know, you approach it empathetically, you know, without letting him off the hook. Mm. But you had to engage some sort of empathy mm. to, to sort of figure out you know, how he could have done this. Mm-hmm. And you had to explore those emotions. Mm. And then you had to you know, sort of, you know, ex- try to explain to yourself and, and to himself you know, what he came from. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think that... I felt like a sleuth. I really did. So much part of this was like a, like a, a, a psychic sleuth, like yeah. just going in and being like, okay, what led you to this, led you to this? And I actually think, you know, as, as much as this book is conjured, I think sometimes the imagination is the most accurate thing sure. because it just goes zeros in on things. I think I kind of nail my father, yeah. I, you know? Well, you, there's, you have to find the emotional logic mm. of it or mm. the, the void there. Mm. But I mean, I don't think we've really talked about like, the, I mean, this book is a, a book written from the point of view of your dead father who is writing from the grave, from limbo, from purgatory, from a, a, a sort of bodiless place. Uh, and I mean, you set up at the beginning of the, of the book, um, you know, uh, I'm done waiting. My father is long dead. He will never say the words to me. He will not make the apology. So it must be imagined for it is in our imagination that we can dream across boundaries, deepen the narrative and design alternative outcomes. This letter is an invocation, a calling up. I have tried to allow my father to speak to me as he would speak. Although I have written the words I needed my father to say to me, I had to make space for him to come through me. There was so much about him, his history, that he never shared with me, so I have had to conjure much of that as well. This letter is my attempt to endow my father with the will and the words to cross the border and speak the language of apology so I can finally be free. And then you start a letter that is, you know, goes for a long time. And he does, you know, I don't, I don't know if you can spoil a book like this, but like he does make the shift from purgatory mm. downward. Mm. Yes. And, and, there, and there's a relief. He feels relief that there's a consistency to hell. Yeah. And he actually kind of loves hell for a while because he's there with all the bad men of the world and he doesn't feel lonely anymore. But I do think, I honestly think that, I think my father gets free at the end of this book. I do. And, you know, God knows, I did learn a lot about our relationship to the dead in writing this book and in Speaking to the dead. And- well, let's talk about a couple of things in, in order, in a way. So, I, and I think the other thing that we deal with, like that I think you dealt with that, I, I think if I'm going to go with my gut reaction, my emotional reaction, was that by the time you're in college and, and this final injustice happens, which is mundane compared to the history of, of violence, uh, was that the fact that you... Ha- for whatever reason, and it didn't, necess- it didn't seem like necessity, you maintain a relationship with these people because he's your father. Mm-hmm. And that, that has got to be the most painful thing in retrospect, was the, 
almost unconscious instinctual need to to stay in relationship right it was it's it's such a mind blank you know it it, it i think i didn't see my father very often after i went to college i saw him maybe once or twice a year and i hardly spoke to him but it took me so long to be able to say really until i got sober you know to be able to say i cannot be in relationship with these this person anymore like this is killing me yeah you know because every time I saw him I would get drunk again and I would do myself in again and I would do myself harm so when I finally cut him off I got sober you know there's that scene in the book where he mixes me a martini when he hears that I'm sober and in the program he's a a complete (laughs) demonic monster no and 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 so I I know for me that Part of, I think, part of the abuse of any father or family member is that you love them. They're your father. They're, they're the person, it's your family. It's the person who brought you into this world. So you're trying to figure out how to be with the people who are supposed to be the people who are keeping you safe and protecting you and being the most important people in your life when those are the people who are doing you in. It's so complex. And I think you have to weave, you know, as, as a friend of mine once said, you have to choose between family and dignity. Right. Yeah. And and I think there came a point where I had to choose my dignity. Like I couldn't no longer. It's a long time. Yeah. Well, I, I guess up can't... into my early twenties, you know. Well, that I and I talk about this to, to people who I have these kind of conversations with. I read this book by this psychologist named Robert Firestone called The Fantasy Bond. That and it was a big piece for me. And I think you just said it. And I and I and I is that almost said it is that when the people when you're that young and the people you love are doing horrible things to you, 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 there's no way because of the love you automatically feel and the in, inherent respect because of your parents to blame anyone but yourself. Of course, you don't blame them. I believed, beginning with the, my father incesting me at a young age, and I was responsible for it. I made it happen. I was bad. You remember those feelings? Oh, I remember feeling like the baddest, worst person it's why I started drinking when I was like 13. I couldn't tolerate how bad I felt. I just walked around feeling guilty. My middle name was I'm sorry. Yeah. I just said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No matter what happened in school. If someone was caught stealing, I was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I must have done it because it was just like, it was just kind of like this spread of badness that had entered me, you know? Yeah. And it took me years and years to get out of, and I still struggle with it. You know, I'm not completely free, you know? So it first started when you were three? Five. Five. And is that where you started whatever sort of process of writing or meditating on this stuff to, to get at the, you know, how did you start putting together the character of your father? Oh, I didn't start at five. I, I, I had spent years just being crazy. <laughs> then there was the years of trying. No, I mean, to, when you were writing. Oh, when I was writing this? Um, I mean, I, I wrote it, you know, it was really strange. This book was like a trance. That's what it feels like. It, it came over me, and I literally... Possession. It, I felt I, I felt possessed. I, yeah. And it's hard to say because people think you're really crazy, but it was like a possession. And I was, I was in Congo, and Congo's a very amazing place for me because we have this incredible sanctuary there called City of Joy, which is a revolutionary center. And what happens there? We heal... Um, 
amazing women who have been horribly um, violated and raped in, during the war. And it's one of the most holy places I've ever been. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a place of radical transformation and revolutionary power. And, you know, it, I was visiting, I was there because it's run by all Congolese and it's determined by them, but I support it and we support it and we co-founded it together. Yeah. And Whenever I'm in Congo, it's such a, an incredibly intense place because there's so much beauty and there's so much love and there's so much war and there's so much poverty. And so it's this intense ambiguity, you know. And the first night I was there, I suddenly just thought, men have to apologize. Men have to apologize. If men don't take responsibility for what they've done, we're going to be doing this work 50, 100 years from now. Something's got to change now. We're caught. We're caught. We've called men out. We've broken the silence. But now men have to do their part of this or we're not going to move forward. And I came back. I went upstate and I basically locked myself away for four months. I didn't see anyone. I just wrote. I just wrote. But did you know you were writing this book? Yeah, yeah. I, it came to me when I was in Congo. That my father has to apologize. My father, my has father to is my representation, my uh, perpetrator, my rep, you know, my direct encounter on on the deep emotional level with the the, the monster of patriarchy. Exactly. And also the monster of. And I need to know what I need to hear. I need to know what the words. I need to know what the structure of an apology looks like. How'd you figure that out? I just started to think. What do I need to be free? So it wasn't a format. It's no, a literary it, it's, format. It's like I need my father to be humble. Yeah, I need my father to be vulnerable. I need him to be equal and not above me. I need my father to. You know, one of the things I realized in writing this is that we have diabolical amnesia in this country about everything, from where it began with the Native Americans to what happened to African Americans, and oh, yeah. on and it on. It gets worse. From now, it's because of the of technology is day to day amnesia. Absolutely. We, it's just, and it's sort of the nature of America, America amnesia. It's the same story. So I realized it's very much connected to apologies because when you apologize, it's the antidote to amnesia. You have to remember, reattach, reconnect with what, what you've done in the past mm. and bring that into a, a visible and viable present so it can be transformed. And I, I, another thing about apology is it's accountability. It's accountability. It's you feeling what I felt like when you were doing what you did to me so that you open your heart to, to empathy, compassion, and you hurt the way I hurt. And then it's you going through a process where you say, what led me to become a person who could be like this? What happened in my own childhood? What happened in my own story? And what do I have to go back and deal with in order to shift the person I am so I never do this again. Because I think most women want to know. I mean, look, there are many women who rightly want punishment from their perpetrators, and, and all perpetrators should be held accountable on some level. Yeah. But I think if you talk to many women, you will find out what they need is an apology. They need a reckoning. They need someone to look at them and say, this happened. I did this. I see your pain. And I, I think... If this, we could begin to create a method for that or process for that where men felt they could come forward and begin to start doing the work of apology, I think things would begin to change. Yeah, I kind of felt that when I was reading this that this seemed to be some sort of very earnest, you know, uh, line being thrown mm -hmm. to here, here's the rope. Mm-hmm. To, you know, the bridge. Mm -hmm. A bridge. It's a bridge. I, I felt that. And, and I had to also look at myself, all the anger I've had at men all my life, 
all the rage I've had at men, the distrust of men, the way I've, in my own way, hurt men by never trusting them, right? Because of my own father. I had to make a decision whether I wanted to go into that to change that so there is a bridge. Or do we just want to keep punching at each other and hurting at each other? Or do we want to actually stop violence? Do we want to build a world where women are free and equal and safe and men feel really good about that and they feel like we're all in the same story rather at war, which we're at right now? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't fully understand it. You, you know, I mean, I know that I am sort of a, you know, a victim of cultural norms you know, I know I've, I've behaved badly in my life, you know, and I, but I do know as time goes on that it's, it's not coming from my heart, you know, because the anger and, the, and you know, the hostility, uh, you know, comes from a, a sort of sadness or some sort mm. of shame, right? Mm-hmm. You would think, mm-hmm. you know, that may not even be of my making, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of what you're saying, mm-hmm. that to go through life because you, your soul has been shattered, by an act of violence, and because of that, you're ashamed of yourself, either because you blame yourself or because you were defenseless. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you can't take responsibility for that shame until you can. Exactly. And in the interim, God knows what you're going to do. Exactly. And I think, I think men have so much shame. I, I, no I think doubt. There, there is so much shame. And I think the tyranny of patriarchy that it puts on men to always know everything, to never be tender, to never be vulnerable, to never cry when you're a boy, to never express your feelings, express doubt, get lost in the mystery. I mean, you just look at my father's story. He was adored. He was idolized. But what did that mean? It was my father, too. Maybe that's why I connected to he, him. He couldn't be a human being because of it. He couldn't be a person who made mistakes. He couldn't be a person who cried over a dead bird. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and so what does that do to your heart? I, I wrote years ago that... It holds it in a hand really tightly. Right. Squeezes it. Yeah. Yeah. Like all the time. Yeah. That's exactly it. And I, you know, I once wrote a long time ago that I think that um, um, bullets are really just hardened tears. You know, that, mm. that where does all the sorrow go in men? Where does all the shame go in men? Where does all the tenderness go in men? It, it goes into violence. It, it, it has to go somewhere. Right. If, if, if I were if I were brought up the way I was brought up and I wasn't able to cry, I would have become psychotic. I would have had no release for that. I would have gone crazy and I would have hurt people. There's no doubt in my mind. What would I have done with all that rage? Right. Yeah. But at least I got to weep all the time. You know. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it, it was weird that I noticed when I was reading it, the, the sort of I imagine out of respect for their privacy or or uh, uh, appropriate to their wishes that you didn't really bring your siblings mm-hmm. into it. Your mother was kind of given a, not a pass, but not a lot of in, in, inspection. Why is that? You know, I, I did a, a last play and a last book and my mother sort of got, Oh, she got, took she, the hit. She, well, she, yeah, she, not the hit. She got examined. And yeah. my brother and sister, I feel like they have their own stories and it's not mine to tell. Right, I, sure. I, I yeah. respect their privacy. You know, are you, do you, are you, are you guys all right? Do you, um, I just, I just want to leave it. Okay. I don't even want all right. to say it. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. I just feel like I don't. I, that's, ten, that's stepping in their zone, and I don't sure. want to... Sure, no, I, I respect yeah. that. Yeah, but your mother? My mother's dead, um, but before she died, I was definitely able to confront my mother about what my father had done, and also about her being an accomplice to that in a lot of ways, you know, and 
And, you know, she finally confessed to me in the last years before she died that I was her sacrifice. And she said those words. And she said, look, I came from a very poor family. I was married to your father. He had the money. I had three children. Where was I going? Where was I going? And she said, I look back and you were my sacrifice. So she knew. You know, she's never said forthright, but she said, looking back, you had infections all the time. You had nightmares every night. You know, you were completely crazy. You, you know, she, and I do remember your father adoring you. You know what I mean? And I remember she actually said to me once that my uncle said to her, there's something strange with Arthur's attention to Eve. Like, she even remembered saying. Her brother? So, yeah. So what do we know and what don't we know? I know. Right. I know what is the veil of denial? But to say that you were her sacrifice and she was conscious of that and willing to do that in order to maintain her place, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that's fucking heartbreaking. Mm. But how many people are saying, oh, living in that same situation? No, I know. I, I, you I, know, I, mean, I would think most of the people in that situation are living in that absolutely. situation. Absolutely. We're living. I, I'm promising you in the years to come that childhood sexual abuse will become the biggest issue. Uh, that that gets it's been uncovered. going on in the Catholic Church for centuries. Century, and if it's that much in the Catholic Church, what's really going on in the family, right? Yeah. So I think we we will see a research, just a, a, a surge in stories coming forward. You know that have people have covered up, denied, because I think it's it's the last taboo. You know, and well, that's so. Let's track that a little. So you know, in in. In looking back on the first time your father sexually abused you at age five, and then you trying to sort of, you know, you, you know, track that within him emotionally and desire-wise, and, and the moment that he crosses over that, you know, you, everyone knows uh, immoral, mm-hmm. you know, line. Mm-hmm. What, what was? Why do you think he he gave himself that freedom? You know, this is going to sound like. Uh, let me see if I can describe this. I think my father had no business having children, right? He, he had no business. He was 50 years old. He was a playboy. He was whatever. But I think that he had killed off tenderness inside of him. He had killed off his, his innocence, his youth, his, that part of you that is, that is um, a child that is open, that is free. You think he did it? Not when you say he killed. Well, I think it was killed right. off on him it, 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 by my by his parents. Usually, by it's not intentional. No, no, yeah. my father didn't kill it off. I yeah. mean, you, you can see the steps in the book of yeah. what what about my father destroying his own heart? Yeah. It's his heart yeah. that we were talking about. So I think when I was born, he was overwhelmed by the opening of his heart. I couldn't stop it. I think it just broke him into a tenderness that he couldn't bear. He didn't, and and, and I I will bet a lot of fathers have that experience if they've cut off their hearts before. Mm. So I think rather than going, whoa, this is too much for me. Can somebody help me work on my feelings and process what's going on? He went to the go-to place, which was sex, right? It was sexual. He made it, it, it was like, if, if you push past that tenderness and you keep going to the next dimension, 
it's it isn't most probably sexual. Well, right? that's the thing. If you sexualize, and I've noticed, I've realized this from from my own experience that you, it is actually a way to avoid intimacy. Exactly. And exactly. I don't think people really realize it, that's that. exactly it. So rather than having your heart ripped open and sit with the vulnerability, and sit with the vulnerability and weep about how much you love your daughter, right? You have to have it, yeah. seize it. Eat it, invade it, yeah. take it, yeah. right? Because that's so much easier. And satisfying. And satisfying. And has closure. And has closure. Exactly. That's exactly it. Hmm. That's exactly it. You know, sometimes I look at my granddaughter, who is both my granddaughters, who are the just, I love them so much, it feels unbearable. <laughs> you know, it just feels unbearable yeah. sometimes. And I have to like really walk away sometimes and just let myself weep because I love them so much. It's just like too much, mm. you know? So I can imagine what my father felt loving me because I know how much he loved me. I remember how much he loved me. And then he had to destroy it because he had not, no one had allowed in him as a man to build a container for that love. They had crushed his container. To compartmentalize it, yeah. to contextualize it. They had, never, they had never let him breathe into his tenderness, breathe into his heart. So when it came, he felt like he was dying in some way. He felt like he couldn't tolerate it. He was going to blow up. And this is what we do to boys. We kill off their tenderness. We kill off their container. So when they grow up and start to have these feelings, they either hurt it or attack it or have sex with it or, you know. Or turn in on themselves. Or turn in on themselves, exactly. The narcissistic compulsion, the thing that came to mind when you were talking about, you know, the inability to contain it and then the consumption and the violence is that, you know, there's a thing that's supposed to happen between parents and children where you, you, you kind of, with mothers and, do- uh, and children, and I imagine fathers in a more conscious way, where you do have to let them be the person they're going to be. Mm. And I think the compulsion of somebody who is a malignant narcissist, you know, they want to make you an appendage. Yeah. And, and, and there, how, how, what easier way than to, you know, kind of turn a child out to where they're, all they can do is react to your needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your projection of who, who you think they should be, right? Like my father was an outcome of his mother and father's desire to rise, to be somebody else, to have this golden son, this golden boy. And I don't even think my father ever felt like that boy deep inside himself, but he was performative. He was doing this role. He was going along with it. He was trying to, and, and then something comes along, which kind of says, Oh, this performance is totally a lie. Here's your real self. You're like, Whoa, the baby. Yeah. The baby. And you were the first baby? No, I was the second. But I don't think he, my brother, evoked those oh, kind oh. of feelings in him. And and so, the the way you're able to chart, you know, this the, sort of the strange explanation that you know for how some, you know, the way you're able to chart the kind of like his knowledge of of being in this other zone, this you know utterly transgressive zone, where you know it's completely secret and completely intoxicating. And that, you know, somehow or another, he did not, you know, uh, have intercourse with you, Mm-mm. which is I, at this at, at when you look back on this, it, it, do, do you see that as like, thank God, or it wouldn't have made a difference? Oddly, I don't know that it would have made a difference because I felt so violated right. and invaded. I think any time you're 
sexual boundaries are overtaken by force by somebody, yeah, it feels like rape. Of course, and and, and he it, was penetrated. And it is, with his, like, yeah, and, and it is raped. And I think, um, I think probably, I think back about why that never happened. I think it has to do with he, he could lie to himself better. You know what I mean? There's right, a these way. These are the kind of things I was wondering about. How you thought this? Through. Yeah, yeah. Like that. You don't have to tell yourself you're really doing anything bad if that right. doesn't I'm happen. Not using needles. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Huh. And I don't even know if that he could. Right. Right. He might. It, this might have been you know, weird acts of impotence in themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then you chart like because I, I think that the reason this book had such a profound effect you know, as, as a man reading it is that, you know, once you move past the sexual abuse and what turned it into just flat out emotional abuse and violence, that that turn is is, is you know, to sort of figure out the emotional mathematics of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. must have been horrible because like, you know, as a child, you're like, you know, that at some point that this is wrong and it's no good and what you had to do to yourself to turn him off and then you know reap the wrath oh but also remember as horrible as it was as terrible it was was i knew i was the most special person in the world to him right and also you had this horrendous secret horrendous secret but i was i i was i was it Right? I was it. Even though it was being destroyed, I was it. Mm. In one day, I became zero from it. I became zero. And I never got back an inch of it. Do you know what I mean? Like I was erased. What happened? In the day my father turned on me, then the first day that he threw me across a room and smashed my face and I went flying. It was over. It was over. And you blamed yourself. Or did you of do Of course it on I blame myself. But I mean did you do it on No, like, no, no, no. I I hadn't done anything in that moment. I think what what happened was my I mean, father to fight. That's what I'm yeah, My to father fight. was getting a sense that people were catching on to what he was doing. There was no doubt about it. It was I you know I was not a well person. And I think How was that manifesting itself? You know, I cut off all my hair. I was And you were what, 9? 10. I was yeah. like really belligerent. I was not eating. I was, yeah, you know, I was, bathing. I was, I was, I had greasy hair. Yeah. I, I was like a, a tragic character yeah. and, and, um, and never smiled because all he wanted me to do was smile. Anything he wanted me to do, I did the opposite. So you were fighting. Yeah. Good. I was, yeah, I was, re- I was rebelling in my own way. So when the moment occurred, when he suddenly realized like that night he came in and I turned my back on him. Right. And I didn't speak and he couldn't get me to, into your bedroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he realized that, like, I had become dead to him. Like, this, this wasn't going. Then it was like wrath, the wrath. And from that point on, my father did everything in his power to destroy me. Everything. Everything. It was Other just than like, killing you. Yeah, and he almost killed me twice, you know. I mean, so it was like, if you're going to dare reject me, if you're going to pull away from me, then you have no right to be... And also there was the fear, of course, that I would eventually tell someone. Exactly. So it was the combination of those this two. This is what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm not afraid to do this. No, exactly. I mean, I always... I always oh, my God. My mother, before she died, um, my father, before he died, he said to my mother, um, like I think a day or two before he died, I want you to take Eve out of any will 
I don't want her given anything. And I want you to always remember that anything she says after I'm gone is a lie because she's a liar. And my mother said to me when I confronted her about what my father had done, if he hadn't said that, she wouldn't have believed him. Like, that was what tipped her off, that it was this true. This is on his deathbed? hmm mm-hmm. Like, he couldn't even... Like, it's such a, a, a sort of... Like, the, the easy way to say it is godless act. Mm-hmm. Protecting himself! At that point. <laughs> yeah. Protecting himself. I don't even know. But see, the thing about all our stories and webs... It's once we go down a certain road, unless you do very much work on yourself and have very much consciousness, how do you get out of the web you have, have laid? My father laid his path. He followed it to the end. He never got off it. But what was going to get my father off his path? He had money. He was white. He was a man. He was privileged. If he got caught. Yeah. Well, who was going to catch him? Who well, was, go- was going to catch him? Well, I, I, you know, like you say, you know, that people knew. Yeah. But even when men get caught, what, does that really take them off their path? That, that's what I'm trying no, to say. I, no, I get it. I get it. Do, yeah, does yeah. it really take men off their path? Has, 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 if we look at all these men, has, so have they stopped and evaluated and really gone into themselves to I, say? I, I don't know. Imagine if you obliterate, you know, a man's potential, you know, like if they're jailed. You know, or, or, or but I, why I, I, do we have a process in jail whereby men are learning about themselves and grappling with themselves? No, no, jails no. are just punishment. They're they're ludicrous institutions. Yeah, that just yeah. just further violence, further penalize, further destroy people, rather than places where people can come to consciousness about what they've done. Well, I guess in my in my dumb head, you know, because like I'm fun, you know fundamentally a, a little codependent, <laughs> you know, I would imagine you know my sense is, is that if you take everything away from somebody that they they will be confronted with themselves, but it doesn't mean that they will. No, it, it doesn't. And it, it doesn't mean they won't fight it. Unless we begin to institute processes. No, I've seen it that the I've seen it not happen. You so know, I, over and over. I, I look, I worked in a woman's prison for eight years. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And we did a writing group where every week the women would write about their crimes and go into the heart of them to look at why they had done what they had done, what motivated them, what in the, and you know what? All of those women changed, and just about all of them are now out of prison and are leading amazing lives because they did that work, because they changed. Our prisons should turn into centers for enlightenment, centers for deepening, centers for consciousness. We're all traumatized. The whole entire world is traumatized. Right. So it's it's about not you know not perpetrating your on yourself mm. because of what you learn from the perpetrator. Exactly. Because it just goes on. I know. It just goes on. How many children who were, who were horribly abused, how many women did I meet in prison who were abused and abused, who became abusers? I mean, it just goes on. So what are we going to do in this world to take it in another direction? And I think that's why I believe in apologies. I think they are actually a process. You know, they're a journey that brings you to another consciousness. Well, were you able to, right. And I agree with that. Now, I, when I, I, there was some vague conversation I had with uh, Brene Brown about, you know, why she, because she's a, she's a statistician. She's a, a, a researcher. And then she, you know, had, didn't have conclusive research on apologies because there was an issue with the Christian approach and the Jewish approach. And the Jews that she spoke to, spiritual leaders, said that there's no apology without death. 
without grief. Without grief. Hmm. That, that, that's true. That's true. Did you find that, you know, this, what, this writing this was a grieving process or that you grieved before? I think when I was in my father writing this, he was going through enormous grief in this book. Enormous grief. Enormous grief. Every time he would get more open and more honest, there was grief. And when that revelation comes at the end where he says, I've been spinning in the place that's inside you. Like, I, I am now lost in the space that I created inside you. That is such a grief moment. It's like, look what I've done to the thing, I, to the person I love the most. I destroyed her. And in doing so, I destroyed myself. I mean, you know, somebody said that to me the other day, well, what would motivate men to do this? And, and I just want to say, I, I know this, that nobody does a mean, horrible act to another person that doesn't stay in their own soul. There will be a time, whether it's in this world or the next world, that you come to pay for that, it, whether whatever state you're in. And the, 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 the gift of the biology is that you get free. Do any of us want anything more than to be free of, of the harms we've caused or the guilt we carry or the shame we carry? or the you know That's what we're doing here is to clean up that stuff. So I feel like we need to say to men... Um, Step forward. Let's, let's create processes. Let's find clergy and, and rabbis and, and imams and people and, and therapists who can help you go through a process to clean up the, the, the message you've made and the hurt you caused and the damage you've done so that you get to be a person who's living a life that isn't constantly in that web that my father created and down that road that just creates more and more and more pain for people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, but like in, in the book where you make it clear a couple of times, which I think was important, that, that he, him realizing that it, he, it has to be thorough. Yeah. Exactly. That in order to take responsibility and experience real contrition, you, you have to do lay the work. It out. You have to do the work. Yeah. And the details are the liberation. You have to be specific. I did this to you, and this hurt you this way. I did this to you, and I wanted to hurt you like this. I did this to you. This was my intention. It has to be clean. It has to be all the way. Because, you know, somebody was asking me yesterday, when do you know if it's a real apology? And, yeah. and I said, you know when it's a real apology. Because yeah. there's an alchemy that happens. You, you just suddenly feel everything gets released. Which for me... Um, I don't know what I feel about forgiveness. I have a lot of mixed thoughts about forgiveness. I don't even know what that is. But I know that the alchemic reaction of receiving apology feels like release, mm. feels like a letting go. Right. If, yeah, because they're like, you know, you're supposed to like, you know, in, in, in sobriety, you mm -hmm. know, when you clean up your in recovery, when you clean up your side of the street, or you make that amends, you, you know, you the outcome of it is, is not about you. Not about you at all. Not about you at all. And thank it might God be I, awful. It might be awful. But you know what? Your work is to clean it up. What everybody else does with it is really none of your concern. It's your work to clean it up and, and, and be truthful and to do the digging hard work. That's why you need to work with a clergy or a therapist or somebody who will help you go in and be more honest and then peel the next layer and be more honest right. until you get to the bottom of that. And it may take you five years to make an apology, but do the work because that work is going to free your life in ways you can't even imagine. There's a couple I haven't even done yet. I'm yeah. almost 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Do it. Yeah. Because I'll tell you, everything you carry 
weight you down. Holds your heart. Holds your heart. And it keeps you from being open and alive and present and happy and sexy and and here, you know? What's your what's your struggle with forgiveness? I don't know. I've always felt forgiveness is, is very religious, you know, and 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 it felt it felt mandated, uh-huh. you know, man being the opposite. Word. I felt like I don't like it when people say to um, anyone who's been uh, hurt or exploited or raped or you know, you just need to forgive him. I, I it drives me absolutely insane. Nobody needs to forgive anyone. There's no mandate. There's no none of that. I think. What an apology does is create the conditions and the chemical reactions that are really forgiveness, but we don't even have to call it that. It's just release. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Because I don't think I'm in a position to forgive anybody. Do you know what I'm saying? I think... Kind of. Well... But in a weird way, not. Because so much of it is self-generated. Yeah. It's really about forgiving yourself. Yes. And how do you forgive yourself is you do the deep thorough, complicated work of making a thorough apology, then you get forgiven in yourself. You can't rely on other people to forgive you and you can't demand that other people oh, forgive you. Uh, you know, like if I've it's done still you... still an outside job if you're asked, you, waiting for forgiveness. Exactly. Like if I make an honest uh, uh, apology to you and you refuse to forgive me, that's on you. Right. Like, and that's your right. You yeah. may decide you don't want to forgive me. Right. But I'm done. I'm done. I get to walk free if I've cleaned my side of the street. And I've rarely given a thorough apology, maybe a couple times in my life, where people haven't forgiven me. No, right. Be, or where people sure. say, we're done. Right. We're done. Yeah. It's over. Move yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because you know when someone's really done the work of an sure. apology. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you find, was there a point when you were working on this book where you're like, what were there any and, and what are the, the gifts I've gotten from this man? Mm. Hmm. I thought a lot about it. My father gave me a lot. He gave me a lot. Um, my father, in spite of all his madness, had enormous integrity. So, you know, not with me, not with in his seedy half-life world with me, but he was, he was a person that capped his salary. He wouldn't take more than, you know, he, he wanted it to be balanced with other workers. He... Had a, he brought me up Unitarian, even though he was Jewish, so I could understand all religions and come to think about what was spirituality. Um, he gave me a very good sense about money, that, you know, a balanced sense of money, you know. Um, he actually made me a very honest person, <laughs> surprisingly, because he was so insane about honesty, you know. And I think it's kind of ironic that I've written the book where I've told the, the deepest truths of my life about him <laughs> when that was his... You know, the Secret thing world. that he, but it was also the thing that he beat me up for time and time again, that I was a liar, you know? Well, that was just a, yeah. that, that's like, uh, it's, it's like our, the president. Yeah, like it, it, exactly. You, you keep repeating that. Yeah, exactly. Until it becomes a message that everybody hears and then you hear it. Exactly. And it becomes true to that, to the degree of uh, enough true so that they're protected mm-hmm. and, and everything, the truth becomes Flexible, And also, I think one of the things I learned during this book is how fascism really happens. Because my father was a, a fascist in the family. He was... No, you see it. You just, he, like, repetition. And repetition. Up, and and, and delegitima- delegitimizing right. everyone around you. Making Oppression, everybody... Yeah, yeah. They don't understand. They can't see the truth. They don't yeah. have value. They're yeah. not value. And so, eventually, you're the only person. Until they're fragile enough to go, this is the truth. Exactly. Exactly. So, 
I, I imagine that you, you you know and I and I'm not asking like I'm not some sort of apologist I'm not asking about the 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 good things to, to recognize the gifts as some sort of defensive you know a bad man but like in my own process of dealing with whatever anger I had to work through with my own parents I had to figure out well there must have been something mm, I got I'm mm. I'm doing okay mm. and they must be responsible for that but it's interesting the things that you listed are so contrary to this, you know, this compartmentalized, very mm. specific secret horror show he was running. Mm. He, was, he was a totally split person, right? But, you know... But I get that. But what about men who use that as uh, uh, an example, but sort of like, you know, like maybe in the past, like, yeah, I, but like I'm doing everything I can differently. You know, I, I'm not apologizing, but see all the good things I've done too? Until you apologize, as far as I'm concerned. Right. You know, I, I really feel this, like... Yeah. This is the act that has to happen in the time that we're living in. I can't explain it any better. How, than do, you that. See, how do you see it happening in, 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 a, you know, in a practical way? You know, what, what is this space you, you okay. want to provide? All right, here's, here's, here's the situation. You're a man. You've gone out with women. You've been really brutal with women. You've hit women around. You've yeah. done terrible things to okay. them. Um, you make a decision that you don't want to do that anymore. Like, you don't want to bring harm on women anymore. And you go and you seek somebody out, and you say, I want to go through a process with you where I can eventually apologize and reckon with what I've done. And stop doing it. And stop doing it. I want to stop doing this. I want to find out who I am, and I want to change who I am, so I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't want to rape women anymore. I don't want to be a guy in a fraternity who drugs all these girls and, and, and in the middle of the night rapes them and leaves them there. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be a, a different kind of guy. I want to go to a therapist and I want to find out how to change yeah. or, or clergy or whatever. And you seek out help and you say, I'm going to go through a process and do that. You know, this is the moment this needs to happen. Yeah. This is the moment because we've gone as far. Look, violence against women was never a woman's issue. We took it on because nobody else was taking it on, right? We don't rape ourselves, it turns out. This has always been a men's issue. Now men need to make it their issue. They need to say, we care as much about this as we care about sports, as we care about any of the things that occupy us because our sisters, our mothers, our daughters, our grandmothers, our wives, our girlfriends are suffering in a very major way in this world. One out of three of us are being beaten and raped Every day, every day. If we've lived with this forever, it's killed our will, it's killed our sex drive, it's killed off our intelligence, it's killed off our agency, it's killed off our, uh, it, you know, it, it's killed off our ability to be employed. It's, it, 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 it is a sickness in the society. And men have to take this moment and say, we care. We're going to change. We're going to look into our hearts and souls and figure out what went wrong and what patriarchy has done to us. Or we're going to be, we're not going to be here anymore. We will perish as human beings because the, the, the people who run things now are the most misogynist predators who are not only destroying women, but they're destroying the planet. They're destroying poor people. They're destroying African-Americans. They're destroying Mexicans. They're destroying Muslims. They're destroying anyone who isn't a white man. And it's like, this is our hour. We're here. Yeah. Either we change now or we perish. Right. And I don't think I'm being extreme. All right, I don't either. I don't either. I didn't bring any Kleenex. Uh, I don't think you are either. Uh.
how do you um i know i feel it every day i yeah. you know, feel it like it's it's terrifying and you, 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 you know to, to transcend for anybody who's aware the the the, the feeling of helplessness mm-hmm. i mean that's the real trick because you know once that becomes exploited then you just kind of move on in 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 a kind of numb exactly consumery apathetic but dead way yeah exactly and that you know that's and i'll tell you something about apologies you know we don't need to just make i think my dream is that these personal apologies scale up and then we begin to look at the cultural and political and historical apologies that need to be made whether it's what do we do to look at the harm and devastation we brought to the indigenous people. And what do we do to look at what we did to African Americans for 400 years through slavery, through Jim Crow, through lynchings, through prisons, through... We have a lot of reckoning to do, but it can be done. See, it's it's like we can plant a trillion trees. That could happen. We can make apologies. We can do these... It's in in our grasp. It's in our control. And I think... That's what brings you life force. I, I, and, and I and I agree with you. But do you, what do you think? It, 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 is it leadership that's missing? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Oh, come on. No, that's, I, know. I mean, look I mean, what but, we have here. No, I get that. But I mean, just in terms of the people with the courage to to sort of you know you risk themselves to 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 really have the, the sadly you do need a certain amount of charisma to motivate people. And you also have to have moral fiber. I think part of what we've lost in all of our uh, politics is, I mean, there are some leaders here and there. Like, I I think if you look at Alexandra Ocasio, if you look at these young women that are coming up, they have real moral fiber. But I think part of what we're so afraid of is to have morality, to have ethics, to have a way that we believe people should be treated. As opposed to fuck them, it's about me. Exactly. It's selfish. I mean, ever since Reagan, I think Reagan bought in the beginning of selfish, neoliberal, me, 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 yuppie land. It's me for myself. Step over anybody else. You know, deregulations. Forget about helping people. I feel like one of the joys of of being part of a world movement, you know, for all these years and being connected to women and activists and warrior women all over the world is like I am in a collective of women who are struggling for liberation, equality, and justice. And I am connected to women all around this planet and their struggles. So I don't feel alone. I feel my struggle is embedded in so many other, and their struggle is embedded in my struggle. That's what solidarity is about. And sure. I think we don't have any leadership that's telling us about solidarity. We don't, we don't, we don't, for, for just to begin with the earth, we don't understand that we are one with the earth. Like that is gone. That idea, like we, we see it as this separate thing that we are here to take, make dominion of, use, exploit, growth, growth, take, take, take. No, that is us. Yeah. That is us. That is our body. Right. That is our food. That is our mother. That is our, that is us. Yeah. There's no separation. So you begin there with that separation and then you get into all the other separations as if the story of black people in this country isn't connected to the story of white people how you are as a white person and how you behave and what you willingly do not recognize or let yourself know, well, that is complicity, right? right. That is complicity because you don't see that you're part of that story. Yeah. You know? Well, how did you, like, you know, in, in your own personal story, like, when did you start reckoning with putting a moral sort of, uh, 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 how did you become moral? 
I think everything about my life <laughs> was not to be my father, was just not to be what he was. Yeah. So if my father was selfish, I was generous. If my father was unkind, I would be kind. If my father exploited people, I would just give everything I had. Like anything he was, I would do the exact opposite. And it proved to be a good idea. <laughs> 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 it worked out. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. There, there's a good thing about it. So he was a role model of sorts, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you've let this go. This book is a letting go. So much. And, and now, now it's come, I guess we'll put this up, you know, to, it comes out now. May 14th. Yep. And what, and what, what's going on in the, you know, out, uh, you travel the world. What are the other things you're doing? Going to the Congo and what about? Well, you know, V Day, our global movement, yeah. goes on. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of productions every year of the Vagina Monologue and other plays all around the world. Last year, I think there were 800. During, really? Yeah, every year during February, there's 800 productions, and they raise money for local groups that work to stop violence against. M- you know, um, women in their communities. Uh-huh. So like in Houston, they raise money for the local right. battered um, shelter. And then One Billion Rising is a global um, campaign which involves dance and art that's now in 200 countries. And every year, millions of people rise all over the world. And that's in our seventh year, which was going to be a one-year campaign. And it's now in the seventh year. Do you think you can explain exactly, you know, in, in a sentence or two, why art is important? Oh, yes, I can. Um, Well, I think one of the problems we have, particularly in this very divided America, for example, is that everybody's into um, duality, right? Uh, Left, right, guns, no guns, this, this, good, evil. Art has this amazing capacity to go under and over that duality. It, It goes into ambiguity. It goes into mystery. It goes into complexity. And it opens your heart. And so you may have a position on something, but you suddenly may care for a character who has the exact opposite position. So it begins to bust up all your hard preconceptions. preconceptions. Mm, And I think what also art does, I'll I'll give you a quick example, like all over the world on um, February 14th and through now, it's all year long, women and men are dancing as a way of protest. Well, in many countries right now, people can't protest because they're being locked up and and, and because of fascism and oppression. But they can dance. Yeah. And so dance has now become, in many places, the biggest form of protest because there's nothing you can do about dance, right? So, again, art is mysterious. Yeah. It becomes this thing that... I mean, one of the reasons I love dancing so much is that it cre- it's, it's public, it's free. You do it together. It's in your body. You express your sexuality. You express your life force. You express your joy. And you express your fury. You express all of it. And I have seen how dancing, like, over the seven years in all these different countries, whether it's the Philippines or India or all over Africa, or, it is literally lifting people's spirits so they get out of that numbness you were talking about. So they break out of their helplessness and begin to say, yes, I've got the energy. I've got the fight. I've got revolutionary spirit in me. I can work to transform consciousness. I can work to transform and, and violence and turn it into you know, a, a different kind of energy on this planet. And I can do it in my body and I can do it in my community yeah. and I can do it collectively. Yeah. And, and how is uh, your health? <laughs> 
My health is very good. Very, very good. You beat cancer? You know, a day at a time. It looks like it's been nine years. So, you know, you know, we don't, I, 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 it's funny when people say you beat cancer. I feel like we're good. Something's going to get it. That's right. Someone's going to get this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, no one's getting out of here alive. So, um, I feel this, I feel cancer was really, really hard and really scary and was the best thing that ever happened to me. It just burst open the next layers of consciousness for me and it took me where I needed to go. And, um, but I'm one of these people who believe that if you go into the wound, if you go all the way into the wound, there's a door there, and then you go through the other side. Mm-hmm. If you come up to the door and you sit there, you get sick, right? Mm-hmm. You get creepy. You get, yeah. you get, you get yeah. bitter. But if you open the door and you go into the wound, inside that wound, there's a door. And it's like, whew, you're out the other side. But you got to go through a moment of like, whoa, this is painful, this is weird, this is horrible, and then you get outside. This is for all things. All things. Apology being number one. Writing this book about my father, I had moments where I was curled up in a fetal position, feeling his feelings, feeling him, feeling my feelings, feeling, you know. But you know what? There was a door there. It was a door there. It was like, wow. You know, what we resist persists. What we avoid controls us. It just does. What's your spiritual practice? Oh, I have many, <laughs> but um, right now I I um, I do a lot of meditation, yeah. and I'm really connected um, to the mother, to the earth, and also I, to other, the communities, the communities. You know, when I'm at City of Joy, I'm in spiritual practice. When I'm dancing there, when sure. I'm dancing in Hong Kong with domestic workers, I'm doing spiritual practice. When I'm sitting out by my pond looking at the fish, I'm in. You know, I feel. I don't know. I feel so lucky and happy that I did this book and I got free. Yeah. And, and, I, and I can just feel, you know, from the, the passion and the anger and the sadness and the, you know, it, you know, your way of expressing it, which, you know, I, I you know, I feel that you usually, your anger is informed by a, 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 a humility and empathy. Sometimes I just get angry. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like, but I imagine to to sort of balance that and not be consumed with that, you you, you got to lean on that other stuff. Oh, you do definitely. Yeah. But I want to just say one last thing about the book. this book. Yeah. Like, I think for me, um, my whole life I was in the vice of victim to my father's perpetrator. That was the, that's who I was. Yeah. Finishing this book, that vice is gone, and I don't really know who I am anymore. Like, in, in terms of, like, the frame of my life, like, that was the frame. Oh, in terms of, of not coming from that place. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's like that paradigm ended. Like, right. it's over. So I walk around every day going, like, who am I? And what am I going to do now? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because everything was coming from that place. Sounds like you're busy. Yeah, but it's exciting. It's exciting. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens But the, But the not knowing is uh, elated. It's not I terri- love it. It's not I terrifying. love it. It's like, who am I going to be now? Yeah, you know? as opposed to, like, uh, who am I going to Who am I? No, you no. Know? It's like, oh, I'm free. <laughs> I'm free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's really a, a powerful book, and it's and you're a powerful person. It was great talking. Oh, you too. And thanks. thanks for thanks for really wanting to talk about it. It means a lot to me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, hi, I'm I'm back. It, I just wanted to say that it was a it was a powerful and moving and uh, sort of life changing conversation that you just heard, and I was honored to have it with her. 
the book, the, the Apology, Eve Ensler's book, is available now wherever you get books. And uh, I don't have any music for you because I'm in St. Louis. But it is a jazz town. I've done better. Maybe it's not appropriate. I don't know. I hope you're all right. Boomer lives! Boomer lives!